Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. One of our stars in our first series of interviews was with the distinguished Emory University a historian, African-American theorist, and uh, many other things, Carol Anderson, the author of White Rage, One Person, uh, No Vote, and many other best-selling, prize-winning books. Uh, Carol was also a star in our movie, How to Fix Democracy, which is about to come out. Um, and uh, we're honored to have Carol for 50 minutes today to talk about the current situation in America. A uh, quick note on, uh, firstly, we want to thank the Bertelsmann Foundation and Humanity in Action for uh, putting this thing on. And secondly, uh, I'm sure many of you will have questions for Carol. Please use the Q&A feature um, in, in, in the Zoom interface. Most of you will be familiar with that. Um, and then uh, Nate will aggregate the questions and after about 45 or 50 minutes, uh, we'll, we'll ask Carol some, some of the questions from the audience. Uh, we'll try and end this in an hour. We don't have a hard stop after an hour. I know many of you will. So I'll try and keep it to an hour. But as always with Carol, there's so much to say that it might go over for a couple of minutes. So uh, preparing for this session, Carol and I talked last night about what she wanted to talk about. And it occurred to me we're at a, a Carol Anderson moment in American history. Perhaps we're always at a, a Carol Anderson moment in American history. Uh, and what I want Carol to do, particularly in terms of voting rights and the challenges and opportunities for November 2020, is firstly to give us a brief history lesson of why we are where we are in July 2020. I know she's going to begin uh, with Mississippi uh, in the 19th century, um, and uh, and then we'll we'll go through quickly the 20th century and up into the 21st century and Trump's America of July 2020. So, Carol, uh, real honor to have you uh, again on, on how to fix democracy. Uh, you're going to get us to turn our minds back to Mississippi in the 1890s. Is that right? Absolutely. And that's because where we are right now wouldn't make any sense. It would look like something that just sprung up out of nowhere, like some kind of aberration. And when I put it into a historical context, we begin to see the patterns, the rhymes. And so I'm going to take us back to Mississippi, 1890. In Mississippi, the state legislature looked up and they were absolutely concerned because Black folk were mobilizing to vote. And they were joining with poor whites. And that kind of voting power is transformative. It means issues for public schools. It means issues for public works. It means issues about different levels of taxation. It is transformative. And so the Mississippi State Legislature said, how do we stop Black folk from voting? But we can't write a law that says we don't want Black people to vote. Because now we've got this little pesky thing 
called the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that came out of Reconstruction after the Civil War. And the 15th Amendment says, the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So how do you write a law saying we don't want black folk to vote without writing a law saying we don't want black folk to vote? And Mississippi went, oh, we got this, we got this. And what they came up with was the Mississippi Plan of 1890, where they used the societally imposed conditions on African-Americans, the legacies of slavery, and then made those legacies the access to the ballot box. And they made it all sound very reasonable, and they made it sound like it was in defense of democracy, not to undermine democracy. For instance, the poll tax. They said, oh, elections are expensive. And you know, and if you really believed in democracy, you would be willing to pay a small fee, a small tax in order to be able to vote. Well, it sounds reasonable until you realize that after centuries of slavery, centuries of unpaid labor, followed by the black codes, followed by sharecropping, a small fee is not so small at all. In fact, it was two to 6% of the Mississippi's fam farm, farm family's annual income. Two to 6% of the annual income to be able to vote. And the poll tax was cumulative. So if you couldn't pay it the first year, then you'd owe two years. If you couldn't pay it for 20 years, then you owe 20 years before you could vote. But it sounded reasonable and race neutral. The same with the literacy test. You systematically deny education. And then you say, but you know, we really want an engaged citizenry, one that understands our values. And so we don't think it's too much to ask for them to be able to read a section of the Constitution. Well, once you have systematically denied education for centuries, asking this population to then read a legal document, those two pillars, the literacy test and the poll tax, the US Supreme Court ruled were race neutral enough that they didn't violate the 15th Amendment. There were several other components in the Mississippi plan. You know, so it said, if this, if this plan doesn't get them, then this one will. If this one doesn't get them, this one will. If this one doesn't get them, this one will. If this one doesn't get them, this one will. And I mean, and so remember this framing. It's going to sound logical. It's going to sound reasonable. It's supposed to be designed to protect democracy. And there are multiple elements in it that sound race neutral enough so that it feels constitutional. By the time we get to the Second World War. So Sorry to jump in here, um, Carol. So was the, this Mississippi model, was it exported to other states as well? Oh my gosh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, the Southern states looked up once, once Mississippi developed the model for it, and then the Supreme Court blessed it on high, then you saw a series of states rewriting their constitutions on the Mississippi plan model. 
So you get new constitutions coming out of Texas, coming out of Alabama. Um, you're, you're seeing South Carolina, you're seeing Georgia, Tennessee implementing the Mississippi plan. Virginia was ecstatic. Uh, one of the key state senators in Virginia, he was like, oh my gosh, this is it. We can get them. We can knock at least 80% of African Americans off the voting rolls, at least. And, and did they do that? Was it, was it really 80% of African Americans were knocked off? It was more. It was more. By the time we get to the Second World War, oh, in, the, in the South, where the majority of African-Americans lived, only 3% of age-eligible African-Americans were registered to vote. That's and astonishing. That, astonishing, right? Because this is a war, right? This is a war fought for the four freedoms. This is a war fought for democracy against fascism. And in the midst of this war, we've got the systematic denial of the right to vote to American citizens so that only 3% of African-Americans are registered to vote by 1940. That's the power of the Mississippi plan. And that's throughout the country or just in the South? Particularly in the South, but this is where 75% of African-Americans lived. And what so, was the impact on, on poor whites? You mentioned that the original uh, the original initiative was driven by an attempt to divide poor whites and blacks. And so you get this really weird game playing happening on because they didn't want poor whites, most poor whites voting anyway. They wanted to have some, but not all. So the Mississippi plan included this thing called the grandfather clause. And that was for poor whites who were having difficulty with the poll tax and who were particularly having difficulty with the literacy test. And that said, if your grandfather was able to vote in the election before 18, January 1, 1867, then you too could vote. Well, 1867 is when Congress passed the Reconstruction Act that said black men could vote. So it was a way, again, of signaling race and blackness without having to say it out loud. Mm. And, and you saw overall a massive uh, diminution, uh, diminishing of everybody voting in the South. At one point, you, had, you were getting things like 80 and 90% voter turnout rates. By the time we're in the Second World War, like in 1942, in the South, in the 1942 midterm election, there was only a 3% voter turnout in the South, 3%. And meanwhile, a lot of African-Americans were actually fighting for America. Fighting for democracy, fighting mm. for America. I mean, so this, 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 this quest for American democracy, this quest for freedom um, is long and hard. And I mean, what's particularly astonishing to me is that many of the soldiers who would have been fight, African-American soldiers who would have been fighting uh, in the U.S. Army wouldn't have been able to vote. Like my father. My father was a soldier in World War II, um, stationed in, uh, eventually stationed in Fort Benning, Georgia. So this, 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 this fighting for democracy. So one of the things that you see happening are that these soldiers came out of the Second World War determined to get some of that democracy for themselves. 
When we think about many of the leaders in the civil rights movement, activists in the civil rights movement, they're veterans. They are veterans. Um, and, and it was this sense of World War II was this incredible rupture because here you have the United States fighting Nazis. And so it's really hard to say we are fighting for democracy, we are fighting for freedom, and then to come back to this Jim Crow nation where Blacks had unequal opportunities across the board, including at the ballot box. One of the things that happened in 1946 in Georgia was a Black veteran went to go vote in a key gubernatorial election. And there was a sign over the door that says, the first Negro that votes, that'll be the last thing he ever does. A statement, something to that effect. He voted anyway, because he had fought fascist. When he got home, a few days later, knock on the door, he steps out on the porch and it's a firing squad. And Maceo Snipes is gunned down for voting in 1946. So this is the kind of, of drive that leads us into the civil rights movement itself. Yeah, Carol, I'm also struck, uh, there are so many tragic paradoxes and chilling ironies in your narrative. Uh, another of uh, the people we interviewed for our first series was Ed Luce, who's the, the, the Financial Times' is, um, wonderful correspondent in the US. He's also in the movie. And he wrote a, a chilling piece recently in which he quoted you. Uh, it's entitled, everyone should read it, Confederate Ghosts Still Haunt America, in which he talks about the need, and he quotes you to, uh, just as Germany denazified after the, the Hitler war and the, the, and, and, and the collapse of, of fascism in Germany, so we need to uh, denazify the South. Maybe we can come to that later. Um, but certainly the historical analogies between the South and Germany are quite chilling. And, and, and you know, one of the things we have to understand is that the Nazis came over to the South in the 1930s to figure out how do we do this. And so part of the game plan for Nazi Germany was, was scripted in the South in terms of, of the way that Jim Crow laws worked in the South. Um, and again, you had black organizations, um, these civil organizations like the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, who is making it very plain about the fascism, that they're fighting fascism overseas as well as fascism in the United States. It was called the Double V Campaign, the Double Victory Campaign. Victory against fascism here and fascism over there. So the Black people were making the links. They saw it so clearly. So, um, the, so the fight, in your mind at least, the fight against fascism both in, in the U.S. and perhaps globally is also a, a, a fight for voting rights, which defined the... the, the the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Is that fair? You know, it, it, it is, the, the right to vote is so foundational to rights. When we begin to think about when you block those rights, I mean, and this is what Mississippi knew in 1890. Um, and this is why you have this, the, the battles coming up all the way through the civil rights movement. Because 
when you begin to open up the electorate, uh, it's like when, I, when I'm teaching this to my students um, and I, I say, okay, and I'm like the big American history survey class. And I've got 300 students in there is the intro class. And, but I've got a handful of seniors who are taking this mandatory class at the last mm. minute. And I say, I only have to be responsive to the seniors who are about 3% of the class at most. And all, all of a sudden everybody else is like, what? And so I only, I only have to, to make sure that my seniors are happy. My policies therefore are really destructive to everyone else there in terms of equity, in terms of fairness, in terms of the labor that they have to, to mm. exert in order to be able to gain any of the resources and the benefits. Well, this is what was happening in America. When you have politicians that only have to be responsive to a small strata of the electorate, the policies reflect being responsive to that small group of people. And Often what that means is silencing and destroying the political will and the voices of so many other Americans. That's what Jim Crow did. And that's what that battle in the civil rights movement was about. So for a while, um, the, the civil rights movement confronted and, um, and, and negated the, 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 the Mississippi strategy. Is that fair? It took it on um, head on. It took on Mississippi head on. And we see the, the, the voting rights, the, the, the cataclysmic battle. You know, so the, yes, they're in Mississippi with uh, Freedom Summer, but it is that cataclysmic battle in Selma, Alabama in 1965. And, and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. SNCC had been in, in Selma for a few years. Working. John Lewis was, was the leader of that, right? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. He was the chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He had such integrity and courage and, and, and an unwavering vision, one, about the power of nonviolence, but two, about the power of American democracy. This full blown belief that democracy could be so much better than it was and could be the kind of bomb that, that, that healed a nation, that made a nation strong. He believed in democracy. And, and so there is this moment, and I'm also gonna mention Reverend C.T. Vivian um, who, who died this past week as well. And Reverend C.T. Vivian was with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He too was in Selma. There is this moment where he's on the courthouse and Sheriff Jim Clark and his deputies are blocking a line of black folks who are trying to register to vote. Because by this time in 1965 in Dallas County, only 0.7% of age eligible African Americans were registered to vote. 0. 0. 0.7. 0. 0.7 mm. in 1965. And, and, and they're lined up to vote, but they have the rules so rigged 
about when the courthouse will be open to vote and the literacy test that you have to take that getting through that thing. And you've got the sheriff there blocking the doors. Reverend Vivian confronts him. And Jim Clark hits Reverend Vivian, knocks him down the stairs. Reverend Vivian pops up, gets in, in Jim Clark's face and says, we are willing to be beaten for democracy. Ooh, when you think then about having John Lewis of SNCC and Hosea Williams of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference leading that nonviolent protest march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where they are symbolically carrying the casket of Jimmy Lee Jackson, another freedom fighter who was killed by police during a march because he was protecting his mother from a beating. We see that scene of Jim Clark on horseback with the bullwhips, with his, his deputies, and we see the Alabama State Police. We see the tear gas, the horses trampling, the bullwhips cracking, and it is a scene of horror. It was so horrific that ABC, cut into its movie of the week, Judgment at Nuremberg, to in fact show the clippings of Bloody Sunday. More, more, uh, more na Nazi uh, allusions and metaphors. But Carol, from, for a while at least, we had a happy ending, a good American ending, where things seem to have got fixed. Is that fair? It was on its way. I mean, there were, there were these court battles, but what Selma did was it led to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And key, that was uh, this is a key event, right? Key, key. <laughs> it was the game changer. What the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did was it looked at states and jurisdictions that had used one of those devices from the Mississippi plan and who had fewer than 50% of his age eligible adults registered to vote. And it was like, by the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. Those states that met that criteria came under what they called preclearance. So any changes they wanted to make to their voting laws had to be approved first by the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice or by the court, the federal courts in in DC. Having to have your laws okayed first meant that these really racist, really discriminatory laws that blocked millions of American citizens from voting couldn't take hold. It meant that politicians who were elected based on a really constrained electorate couldn't be in power, writing consistent policies to figure out how to continue to constrain the right to vote, block the right to vote, disfranchise um, as these court cases are going through. It stopped all of that cold. To give a sense of the power, Mississippi had about 5% in 1960, early 1960s, Mississippi only 5% of African-American adults were registered to vote in Mississippi in the early 1960s. Two years after the Voting Rights Act, it was almost 60%. So to go from 5% to 
to almost 60% gives you a sense of the power of the Voting Rights Act. Now, these states would come back and they would challenge, challenge, challenge. But each time they got pushed back because of this strong, incredible law and a kind of zeitgeist, a sense in American society that the vote was sacred and that states that tried to deny the right to vote to American citizens, those were states that should not be rewarded for bad behavior. It worked. It worked so well that it had crosshairs put on it by the same kind of intransigent right-wing white supremacist groups and politicians. Anyone, that, Carol, in particular, who we can, we can name here who has dedicated their political careers to, towards destroying this, this, this law? I, I could name a few, like- uh, Oh, name our, them, they deserve current, to be named. My current um, Chief Justice of the US Supreme Court, John Roberts, he has been an opponent of the Voting Rights Act for, for a long time, but he was trained, mentored under uh, another Chief Justice, William Rehnquist, who got his, um, who cut his teeth on suppressing the vote of Hispanic voters. Well, what's the argument? I mean, okay, maybe they're racist, maybe, maybe they're overt racist, maybe they're not, but what's the, the, the best case argument for now moving away from this law, which of course we are doing? Okay, so let me just be real clear here. They had no best case argument. They had to ignore the evidence in order to make that argument. Here's the argument that they made in the case was called Shelby County v. Holder. Which is what, 2013? 2013, right. yes. The argument that they made was that racism was no longer a factor in the United States the way it was in the 1960s. Is that fair? No. And why it's not fair, what they had to ignore was that when the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized in 2006, the Department of Justice had evidence that it had provided to Congress that they had had to block over 700 changes to voting laws because those changes, those proposed changes were racially discriminatory. So in 2006, if you're having the Department of Justice talk about having to block over 700 changes, by 2013, we cannot say that racism is no longer the force that it has been. And also, these are the Obama years. And that, that plays into to two things. And so in the Obama years, we also saw the rise of, of a kind of hatred that a black man was in the White House. So if you're paying just a rat's tail worth of attention, it's really hard to say that racism is no longer a factor, but five justices of the US Supreme Court did just that. And what they did was they gutted the pre-clearance provision of the Voting Rights Act. When they gutted that provision, that let all of these states that had been under, uh, under preclearance, now phew, they rushed in. Texas, 
within two hours after the decision implemented a voter ID law. Now, again, like the Mississippi plan, that's going to sound logical. So let me come back though, just a bit to the Obama election, because then that explains why these voter ID laws work the way they work. Which election, which one? 2008. Okay. Because so this becomes, so 2008, it starts churning. By 2012, it's like, wait a minute, he's not gonna be a one-term president, whoo. So one of the things we hear in the US is, well, how racist can America be? Because we elected a black man to the White House twice. And what that says is, how racist can the majority of whites in America be? Because the majority of whites elected, voted for Barack Obama. But that's not accurate. In fact, the majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964, since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. Well, that was the year before. Yeah, 64. So we have not seen whites voting for the, major, uh, the majority of whites voting for a Democratic candidate since then. Not even for Sons of the South, Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton. And the majority of whites did not vote for Barack Obama either. So he got into the White House because he had an incredible grassroots organizing ground game that registered millions of first time voters who then went to the polls. Those millions comprised were overwhelmingly African-American, Hispanic, Native, uh, Asian American, young and poor. That becomes the Obama coalition, but it also becomes the hit list for voter suppression. After Shelby County v. Holder, the states would comprise an array of, of policies. Again, saying that we are trying to, to uphold and maintain the integrity of the ballot box. We are trying to stop the corruption at the ballot box. We are trying to stop people from stealing elections. This is the same language that Mississippi used in 1890. And again, because there's, the Voting Rights Act is now very hobbled, but the, the 15th Amendment is still there. So Carol, I, I wanna leave some time for questions, but basically are we back in 1890? I mean, history is supposed, especially in the American narrative, it's supposed to move forward, but are you really arguing we're back now in 1890? I mean, uh, are, are we returning to the dark days of, of Jim Crow? We are in a battle for the soul of America because there are, the, there are so many in power, including Donald Trump, who really want a white nationalist regime where what you have is a vast pool of labor without rights and that the resources from that labor then eddy up into a small strata of, of, of whites. That's what they're arguing for. That's what they're fighting for. When you look at their policies, when you look at their rules, that's it. 
I have to quote, you have a great tweet, Carol. I know you, uh, you're a great tweeter. You have a, particu a particularly uh, uh, pungent uh, tweet today. You said, 45 always puts a kilo of pure, uncut white supremacy on the table for his followers. Whenever he senses he's in trouble. If they could break their addiction, what an amazing America this would be. I do want to get to that amazing America. But at the moment, this addiction then, is this part of the, the, the cancer eating away at American society, and particularly, potentially in the, the November election? Is this Absolutely. something that can profoundly, I know in your reading, at least for in 2016, uh, the outcome would have been quite different had we not had that 2013 amendment to the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, so the, the, the Shelby County v. Holder decision did enormous damage to voting rights in the United States, which then did enormous damage to democracy in the United States. And voter suppression was key in installing Donald Trump into the White House. When you look at the states where you had either felony disfranchisement or you had voter ID laws, um, they were instrumental in blocking key segments of the black population from voting. And Donald Trump, and so let me be really clear here in terms of when you talked about the cancer. Donald Trump had no governing experience, no policy experience. What he brought to the fore in the political realm was racism. He made his political mark with birtherism, which was the denial of the legitimacy of Barack Obama as an American citizen. Um, and, and, and the whole fabric of, let me see his birth certificate, made no sense because his mother was an American citizen. And the way that citizenship works, mm. it goes, it's matrilineal. So she could have given birth to him on Mars and he would have still been an American. So it is wrapped in that otherness, that foreignness, that anti-blackness. That's how he made his mark. But can you, Carol, connect uh, Trump's racism, which I was always, I wasn't absolutely sure on. Now it seems fairly self-evident. Uh, I mean, being the only thing he actually believes in. Um, connect the racism and the upcoming election and voter suppression and voter rights, because that really is a, a very, very um, ch chilling specter for the next few months. How is, how, how is this going to play out in your mind? How could it play out? And what do we need to do to make sure that the election is a fair, free, democratic election? So the first thing we have to understand is that those voter suppression techniques that the states implemented after Shelby County v. Holder are still there. Voter ID laws are still there. They're predicated on the lie of voter fraud, massive rampant voter fraud. But Justin Levitt did a study from 2000 to 2014. There were only 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud out of 1 billion votes. So, 31 out of a billion? Yeah, 31 out of 1 billion over 15 years. Mm. So this isn't massive, this isn't rampant, but this is the lie 
that is the foundation for these kinds of laws. So, and with voter ID laws, what they do is, it sounds ubiquitous, it sounds okay, because everybody has an ID, but the states have decided what types of ID. And they have looked at, states like North Carolina have looked at um, the racialized data on who has what types of ID and then made the kinds that African-Americans disproportionately do not have as the access into the ballot box. So voter ID laws are still there. Voter roll purges are still there. We, the Brennan Center has found that from 2014 to 2016, 16 million people were wiped off the voter rolls. And the US Supreme Court has said that it is okay in violation of federal law to wipe people off the voter rolls simply because they haven't voted regularly. And who doesn't vote regularly are minorities, young people, and poor people. That's still there, sanctioned by the US Supreme Court. Gerrymandering, still there. Poll closures, still there. So these barriers are still there. What we're seeing though, we saw it in the 2018 midterm election, which was a referendum on Trump and his regime, even when his name wasn't on the ballot. We had the highest voter turnout in a midterm since 1914. What we're seeing in, this, in these, the run of the primaries in 2020, even with COVID-19, are massive increases in voter turnout. It's like people who realize that their institutions of democracy are failing them, are standing up and fighting for this democracy as hard as they can with the weapons that they have, which is the power of the vote. And so you see, for instance, in Wisconsin, when uh, because of COVID-19, there was a, 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 a push to try to create some additional time for absentee ballots to come in so that people didn't have to choose between their right to vote and their right to health. And the US Supreme Court was like, nah. And so people stood in what I call a COVID-19, before a COVID-19 firing squad, determined to vote. That determination is there. This is why we have this push now for mail-in ballots. And what that push does, and, and generally what we have seen overall prior to this moment, is that mail-in ballots don't favor one party over the other. But because of COVID-19 and Trump's fears about what this means, he has gone on this crusade to yell voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud when it comes to mail-in ballots, although that's the method he uses to vote. And I know that you, you connect also his hostility to the post office to his fear of mail-in ballots. Absolutely. So if what you can do is as you see this rise, we have seen, for instance, in Wisconsin, they had something like a, a 10 times <laughs> exponential growth in terms of people requesting absentee ballots as a way to exercise their right to vote while also being able to, to stay safely at home. 
if what you can do is to slow down the post office, if what you can do is to destabilize the post office, then the route that those absentee ballots can take in order to being able to be counted can be destabilized. This is something we've got to pay close attention to. So we've got four months, Carol, till the election. Everyone, of course, and I'm sure everyone watching this, if they can, will vote. What else can people do to make sure as ordinary people, not everyone has the, the clout you have, but what can ordinary people do to try to make this election fair? And, you know, and so that is, there are, um, as we know, John Lewis mm. died recently. Sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk is a reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. One of the things that when the Supreme Court gutted it, it said it's an old law, the standards don't work. Well, the, the House of Representatives crafted a new Voting Rights Act. It is sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk and it has been for over 200 days. But there's no way that McConnell will push this through between now and, and the and election. And even if he does, Trump will presumably uh, veto him. And, and this again is where we have to not just let these folks ride. We have to hold them accountable. And so what everyday folk can do is to get on the phone, call and, or, and write your representatives that you want a fair election. That's what democracy is. Put your ideas out there and let the people decide. When you have these fake pieces up there, we also have sitting on the desk, uh, um, House Resolution 1, which deals with things like um, election day is a federal holiday. There are some people who are not going to be able to be able to vote by mail. We have to have enough polls and we have to have them where people can actually take off work and get there to vote. If you can't get that right now, what I mean is then to work with your employers to recognize how important this election in 2020 is and to provide the space for that employers can get people to be able to go to vote. I think what we also need to have is just talking with one another, you know, so that there's this sense, part of what Newt Gingrich, when he was Speaker of the House, did in 1994 was to set out this plan that the demographics in America were no longer favoring the Republicans. So how do we turn the people against government? How do we make it clear that government doesn't work? How do we just get, oh, the whole dog thing is corrupt? Because if people are turned off, then they're not going to bother. Well, it is to re-engage with this democracy. Citizenship then. Yes, absolutely. And that's a, a, a conversation I think, Carol, you and I will have at, at future How to Fix Democracy uh, gatherings. Uh, you said we need to talk to one another and I do want the audience to talk to you. But finally, Carol, uh, I think um, in your tweet, you, you, you you spoke about how beautiful America mm. could be if we could get beyond, if we could get off this 
mm-hmm. this crack cocaine or whatever you want to call it of, uh, of racism. Um, very, very briefly, Carol, outline the beauty of a, a, a post-racist America. Oh. Imagine a place where we're concerned about the quality of schools wherever you might be. And not because black kids are going to get a good school or uh, or white kids are going to get this, but we all care about the quality of education of our children. Imagine where we're not dumping toxic waste in poor neighborhoods, but in fact, we are really rethinking what environmental justice really looks like so that everybody's safe. Imagine, wow, imagine access to healthcare and the, not the fear that as they did an interview after the 2016 election in Whitley, Kentucky, where most of the people there were on Obamacare, the Kentucky version of Obamacare, but they voted for Trump because there are those people who've got better health care than we do. When you're not thinking about those people in those kinds of derogatory terms, but you're proud and happy that people have access to health care, once we rid this nation of the toxin of white supremacy and know that buried in white supremacy is patriarchy, that misogyny, um, are all of those nasty isms that get in the way of democracy, then we can begin to envision what a truly beloved community looks like. Wow. Wow. Well, I I think everyone will share that and everyone will want to share a conversation with you. Nate, over to you. I'm sure there are lots of interesting questions for Carol. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, Two questions uh, to start us off. First, uh, how do we get away from only symbolic politics? For example, 37 states have have painted Black Lives Matter on streets, but only one state has ended qualified immunity. And second, uh, do you have a view on a a book, Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean, about the influence of anti-democratic ideology in the Supreme Court? one is that we, one is that for the first question on symbolic politics, is that we don't treat the symbolic politics as substantive and go, okay, we're done. Um, but we see it as part of the road that is being built to a stronger democracy. Um, and that's what becomes so essential. And, and you know, when they said the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, it is now that, you, now that those states have done that, which is great, now let's talk about the next step. And now let's work toward the next step. Because if Black lives matter, what do our policies look like? What do we need to change so that those lives really do matter? So it is that continued engagement with the policymakers that is absolutely instrumental for moving from the symbolic. And the symbolic is really important. I would not um, diminish the power of the symbols. Carol, very briefly, can I just jump in here? How, how, How do you 
place Black Lives Matter within the, the narrative of African-American history? Very briefly, is it, is it the next chapter of, of, of the civil rights movement of the 60s? Absolutely, absolutely. The vision, the engagement, um, the, the tactics. I mean, so it's that people now, oh my God, John Lewis, oh, but the Freedom Rides and the sit-ins, they were pilloried and vilified for disrupting the status quo. And so I see Black Lives Matter in that same vein, saying we've got some structural problems here. Structural racism is doing enormous damage. And we work across communities. So the civil rights movement also worked across communities. Um, I, I see Black Lives Matter in that same vein. Nate, um, over to you for more. Yeah. I'm sure there's some more questions. And there was, uh, there was a question yeah. there, Nate. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Go yeah, there's a question about um, democracy in chains by Nancy McLean. Uh, we've okay. talked a bit here about the Supreme Court and the justice system. What's the influence? And, 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 and that's a brilliant book as far as I'm concerned um, because it's laying out the, the, the think tanks and the funders and the academics who are creating the, the narratives and the kind of philosophical and theoretical foundations that are democratic. And we see these folks now in power wielding that framework as if it is um, em emboldening and as if it is empowering democracy when in fact what it is doing is absolutely eroding and, and, and corroding it. Okay, um, and there's been a lot of talk here about the uh, evolution of voter suppression. Um, looking ahead to the next elections, uh, are, we've already talked about some of the warning signs, but is this going to be uh, kind of the worst in recent memory? Is it, is it, are we reaching a new low point as, with the uh, threats to mail-in ballots, with uh, un unidentified soldiers, federal soldiers at protests now? Um, mm. There's just a lot of red flags. Is there anything that can be done to make sure that this is uh, yeah. not the worst? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> So, so part of what we're also seeing um, with that massive voter turnout, with the, the mom's protest in Portland, um, is that American, the American people are fighting for this democracy. We saw it when, when Trump had the military clear uh, the peaceful protest in Lafayette Square Park so that he could hold up a Bible in front of a, a, a boarded up church for a photo op. And that clearing out of peaceful protests didn't stop people. Instead, the protest became more. So I think that what we're going to see, I've heard people talk about, I'm willing to crawl through broken glass to vote in 2020 because American democracy hangs in the balance. And and so it is putting pressure on our elected officials. It is registering to vote, making sure the people in our household can vote, are registered. It is facilitating in ways that we can, find, helping to, to donate to civil society so that they can also do the heavy lifting of democracy. There is so much we can do. 
there's a follow-up here about the um, Supreme Court. Um, mm. What is the role of the Supreme Court in uh, protecting or eroding voting rights? Uh, how does, what's the outlook? And so as I see it, the Supreme Court has had a very narrowed, small history of protecting voting rights. Generally what we see from the Supreme Court coming out of Reconstruction um, and to about 19, after the Voting Rights Act, um, so many of their decisions were undermining the right to vote. And, it, and, and when they did come on the side of voting rights, it took them multiple cases, like with the white primary uh, decision, Smith v. Allwright in 1944. And now what we see, you think about this, this case, this, this, this session that we've had with the court. They have um, approved sending voters out into uh, the coronavirus, even though their, their absentee ballots hadn't even been received yet. They have okayed Alabama requiring witnesses so it, for an absentee ballot, but if you're trying to do social distancing, how are you supposed to then go over to somebody's and say, hey, can I get some witnesses to sign this? They have said in Texas that you know, Texas has a no excuse absentee ballots if you're 65 or older. Well, people are saying, hey, I've got a health concern, which is I'm afraid of contracting the coronavirus. And the Supreme Court has said the coronavirus is not an acceptable excuse to get an absentee ballot if you're under 65. And so on these kind of key voting rights cases, even in this session, and then going back a little bit further, dealing with extreme partisan gerrymandering. The Supreme Court has not been on the side of voting rights. And that is why elections matter. Because the folks who are sitting on this bench help decide the contours of American democracy far beyond, because these are lifetime appointments. So they outlast the presidency, they outlast Congress and the, the legislative branch. And so that's why elections matter because the influence and the impact it has on the judiciary, which impacts our lives. Can't, could a, could a, if, if Biden's elected in a Biden administration and there's a, a recalibration of the Supreme Court, could the 1965 Voting Rights Act be just reestablished um, as uh, the dominant law in this sphere and go back to where we were in 65? So, so part of what we'd have to have is a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate to in fact put the new Voting Rights Act through as a bill. We know that there's going, there would be a challenge. Having a Supreme Court that believes in voting rights when the new Voting Rights Act bill comes through will be absolutely essential to writing the course of American democracy. Votes matter. And that's why the voter suppression is so intense, because it becomes very clear how much this matters. Nate, perhaps this is yeah. the last, uh, we've got about three or four minutes left. Maybe we could wrap up with, with, with two or three more questions. Sure. Um, perhaps the one last bit of uh, voter suppression we haven't touched upon yet is gerrymandering. Yes. Uh, what's the single best thing uh, that can be done to resolve this problem? 
nonpartisan redistricting commissions are, and so let me do a brief thing on what gerrymandering is. The, the Constitution requires that after the census with reapportionment, that um, they, you redraw the, the congressional district boundaries, the legislative district boundaries. And so the legislative bodies sit there and they redraw. Well, if the legislative bodies, and what, is, what happened in 2010 was that the Republicans used um, basically like Cambridge Analytics software, powerful map draw, drawing software, and they came up with these, these districts that had to, to eliminate competitive districts, because if the districts aren't competitive, you can lower voter turnout. And two, to say no matter how many votes we get, we will always have the majority of seats and power in the legislature. Now think about that. We often think about a democracy as if you get the most votes, then you get the most seats. But the way that these maps are drawn, it, 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 it diminishes, it destroys one person, one vote. And so when you remove the hyper-partisanship from redrawing district boundaries. And that's why this election is also so important because it's a census year. So it's a year when those lines are going to be redrawn for the next 10 years. Having nonpartisan redistricting commissions that abide by the constitutional standard of one person, one vote, that's a game changer. That is a game changer in terms of what it looks like at the state houses and what it looks like in Congress. Extreme partisan gerrymandering puts somewhere between 16 to 26 additional Republican representatives in Congress alone, which was helping to provide the cushion to get a series of legislation through, such as the, the $1.5 trillion tax cut that 29%, only 29% of American people agreed with. We in gerrymandering, we're in a day where we've got responsive, representative government. That is a wonderful, a, a wonderfully um, uh, vision, a, a, a wonderfully uh, exciting vision to end on, Carol, a real democracy, given real democracy. all the challenges to American democracy today. And I want to thank you so much for for. Uh, a, a brilliant performance. Uh, as I said, it's, it's a Carol Anderson moment and we, we, we need a Carol Anderson to unravel so many of the problems with America. And I think the one thing we've learned today is we need to vote and we need to have conversations about citizenship. So Carol, I hope we'll have you back on how to fix democracy perhaps next year to talk about the challenges and opportunities with citizenship, both in America and elsewhere. I want to thank you again for for your time and your, your passion and your wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez 
and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week and thanks so much for listening.